Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our world. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and then together we interview a guest about their work in design. Because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about graphic design in museums and how graphic design is approached when we're dealing with the visual arts. Joining us today as guest co-host is Katherine Hughes, design director at Stoltz Design Group. And our special guest is Lisa Fishman, director and chief curator at the Davis Museum on the Wellesley College campus. Together, the team at Stoltz Design and the Davis Museum have worked to produce exhibition identities, catalogs, and graphics across a wide range of programs. But before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. If you want to see more from Design Museum Everywhere, check out our traveling exhibition, Bespoke Bodies, the Design and Craft of Prosthetics, which is free and on view now through October 10th at the Jossiloff Gallery at University of Hartford in West Hartford, Connecticut. This is our first exhibition in person since the pandemic. So we're really excited to have Bespoke Bodies on view at the University of Hartford. So check out designmuseumeverywhere.org for all the details and plan that visit. And with that, on to this week's topic, graphic design to capture the experience of the visual arts in museums. The Davis Museum is home to distinguished permanent collections from around the globe, including paintings, sculptures, works on paper, photographs, and decorative objects from antiquity to the contemporary moment. So what does it look like when graphic design meets museum exhibitions, museum brands? Since 2014, the team at Stoltz Design have worked closely with the Davis team to reflect the curatorial insights as well as the materiality, technique, and the presence of the art. I'm joined by our guest co-host this week, Catherine Hughes, to learn how the team at Stoltz Design Group collaborates closely with the Davis Museum to create beautiful visual experiences across multiple touch points at the museum. Catherine is the design director at Stoltz Design Group. At Stoltz Design, Catherine has created identities, print collateral publication, and websites for clientele such as Harvard Business School, MIT Museum, and Milton Academy. Catherine spearheaded the redesign of Spectrum Magazine and led the design efforts for a series of catalogs for the Davis Museum at Wellesley College. Her work has been recognized by 50 Books, 50 Covers, the AIGA Bone Show, Communication Arts, Graphics, Print, the Typesetters Directors Club, UCDA, and Under Consideration. She taught typography at RISD and is currently an assistant professor at MassArt. Catherine's designs include a wide range of identity, print, and interactive projects. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, it's lovely to see you. I want to talk about the work around museums, but maybe we could use the MIT Spectrum Magazine project as a little case study here. Can you talk about what the goal of that project was and what they were trying to communicate and how you helped them communicate that? Absolutely. So MIT Spectrum Magazine is a magazine that goes out to all of the living alumni from MIT. And when they went into their most recent capital campaign, when MIT went into their most recent capital campaign, they decided that they needed to rethink how they were using that as a vehicle to communicate to this population that they really wanted to speak to. And the previous version of the magazine was a large tabloid fold-down piece. You know, it got sent out with wafer stickers on the side. It was perhaps a little bit less elegant than what they wanted to do, and they really wanted to bring it in line with their current branding system and make it feel like something that was representative of the thinking that was happening on the campus at that moment. So we took this large tabloid piece and played with the format. Uh, we brought it down so that it could mail flat, found the largest size it could be, 
but still male flat so that it was still sort of a large, beautiful thing. And really tried to make it feel like it was innovative, that it was reflective of the thinking that was happening, that it felt like a dynamic space where exciting work was contained. So it means lots of vibrant colors, lots of contemporary typefaces, and many different type families that can be used in a flexible way. And then also some of the most stunning photography. I think that's one of the benefits of working with these really well-funded educational institutions is that they can support gorgeous photography. So the images that we get to work with are always outstanding. And sometimes it might be on campus and other times it might be a research lab that's in Antarctica and you get to work with all of those things. And it's really incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. I love you. You're walking this line between like the brand of the institution, but then also trying to like generate excitement, like you said, through color and visual. How does typography come? You know, our listeners, you know, especially non-design listeners might be like, Typography, what? You know, it's like Times New Roman, just make it that. So how does type fit into this visual communication? You know, again, thinking about brand, thinking about the the energy you're trying to put out into the world. Well, I'm super biased on this topic. You like type. I like type <laughs> more than most things. I mean, I, I like my children a lot, but I feel like type <laughs> is one of the things that I am most passionate about. Yeah. So I think letter forms and typography I, you know, I teach a lot of type classes at MassArt. I teach type one, type two, and type three. Um, And I feel like it's something that comes into every course that I teach regardless and every project that I work on, whether it's at Stoltz or something that I'm doing independently. And I actually think, again, I'm biased, but I think in many ways, typography is sort of the root of communication design. And what I love about it so much is that it's something that we're taught our entire lives to see through, that you see the message that's being conveyed by these little forms. And once someone's eyes are open to typography, suddenly they start to see the art and the intention that is involved in that communication. And they're gorgeous, right? Like I feel like letter forms are such exciting things to look at. The curves, the way they um, manipulate form, the way they can change your interpretation of information is perhaps one of the things that gets me most excited about graphic design or communication design. You can look out, you know, it adds and and different visual medium and if you zero in the type is so interesting how it's applied by different brands different messaging it is one of those things like design generally it's so ubiquitous that like you sort of take it for granted but there are all these subtle differences and changes how how do you go about i mean for something like mit is the typeface and typography sort of set because they have like their brand fonts they use or are you able to push that in different directions That's a great question. So in many cases, when you receive the brand standards for a place, they already have typefaces that are determined. And so those are the typefaces that you're going to use for most of the things that you do. The joy then is being able to see how you can manipulate them and how far you can push and extend them and and play with them to make them say what you want them to say. But whenever we start designing a brand at the beginning, we get to choose the typefaces. And then you go back to your research and all the thinking that you've been doing and all the speaking that you've been doing with the constituents at that place and try and think of a typeface that feels appropriate, whether it's um, the place that it was made. Like, is it a typeface that was designed by a foundry that's based in Cambridge? Is it a typeface that is historically appropriate? Like it was generated at the same time that the institution was founded. Does it match the mood of what the institution is trying to convey. So if they want to feel both playful and have gravitas, maybe there's a way that you can find a typeface that speaks in that way so that everything that they're putting out into the world is reflective of those goals. I really want to get into museums. I know we're going to have Lisa on in a minute, but and you all did so much work around the Davis Museum. I'm fascinated by how you can use graphic design to like make museums come to life, right? Like both in the actual museum 
But then how do you translate like this experiential moment onto a page in a book, right? And so I was wondering if you could kind of give us the breadth of the things that you've worked on with the Davis Museum and museums in general. Again, this might be something people have been to museums and they don't realize how much graphic design goes into that experience. So can you kind of like walk us through maybe that museum experience from a communication design standpoint? Absolutely. So communication design, graphic design, typography is everywhere in a museum. You think about the signs on the doors. You think about the posters that are advertising the different exhibitions. You think about the graphics that are on the wall. Someone has very consciously chosen every element of those, color, typeface, layout, form, physicality, location, to give you a very specific experience. So when we work with the Davis, we talk to the curators and try and figure out how they are slicing through the collection, how they are gathering things together to create a thesis or a point of view. And then we try and create the visual corollary to that. So an exhibition is usually a pretty ephemeral experience. It's something that you might visit a few times. It's something that will be in a building for a limited amount of time and you go and see it. But there is design to the way you have that ephemeral experience, the way you are moved from one piece to another to create, like I said, sort of like a thesis that connects all of these objects that tells a story. And when we do designs for museums, a lot of times we're trying to capture something about that experience or that thesis and make it manifest in the visual expression that exists within the space and or in the catalog or in the chats or whatever it is. That's something I've always found interesting is each exhibition or program or event series within the museum is almost like a little sub-brand within. Do you have to balance like the overall sort of feel of the museum, but then there's like this really unique exhibition that has a different look? Like, how do you strike that balance? Absolutely. So we have designed for exhibitions that were Baroque painters, and then we've designed for, you know, contemporary sculptures, and they have a very different feel and the intent of the curators is very different. And so, again, we have lots of conversations and try and figure out how we can choose the type that feels like it reflects that. Um, if we're designing for Jason Rohr, who's a video game artist, we might use a pixel typeface because it feels like it's reflective of the aesthetics that are in his work. Whereas Carlo Dolce, who's that Baroque painter I was referring to, we chose something that was incredibly classical and beautiful and elegant, but also felt like it was from the same era as the paintings. In that catalog specifically, we actually used a spot gold ink because Dolce used gold pigments in his paintings. And so we wanted something about the book to really reflect the experience of seeing the paintings, even if it's as subtle as moving the book and seeing how the ink catches the light in a way that feels like seeing the painting in person. You and the team at Stoltz are so good at, again, I love museums, so it's like hitting my heart. But like when you look at these catalogs, you're like, yeah, I'm not at the exhibition, but I, I feel the experience on the page as if I'm there. And I wonder if you could share some of the other strategies like that, that you've done to kind of like, again, it's a two dimensional, you've done this with posters as well, but I see the posters and I'm like, it's like I'm feeling the exhibit and I'm not there. So how else do you kind of strike that feeling? Oh, that makes my heart happy that you said that, because I agree. I feel like museums for me are almost like a sacred space. Like there's something about the way the climate is controlled and the way the lighting is controlled that really feels like you're having a reverent experience when you're in them. I think one of my favorite catalogs that we've designed was for Eddie Martinez, who's a contemporary painter, and he does these absolutely massive paintings that are incredibly gestural and have all sorts of 
unusual objects that have been put onto the canvas. There might be like a baby wipe or like a cough drop wrapper or like his footprints will walk across it or he used boat paint or something like that. And so the materiality and the tactility is one important aspect of his work. But the monumentality and the overwhelming scale of the pieces is another. And so we tried to create a book that felt large, that felt kind of monumental. It's big, but also gave you that sense of seeing something from a distance in its totality, but then moving closer to capture those little details and to really understand the materiality of it. The challenge with that as well is that there were very few paintings in the exhibition. I can't remember if it was eight or 13, but it was hardly any. And how do you create a book out of that? And so we, we had a few strategies for it. One is that we actually French folded the pages, which means that each individual page has been folded over so that it's double thick. Smart. And then on the bound edge, everything is glued together. So you end up getting, you know, twice the depth for the number of pages or the content. And then we would show each painting in its totality and then have a series of full bleed details on the following pages. So you see the whole thing. And then you get to look at it and find some of those moments of um, almost serendipity that you would experience in a gallery where you look at it and you're like, oh, like I see a baby wipe there or whatever it is. We also, for that, we used um, one of the house typefaces. So we used post-grotesque, which is one of my favorite typefaces of all, of all time. Um, and then we introduced a display typeface that was just kind of weird and wacky. It's an old typeface, I think, from the mid-90s. And if you hold down caps lock, you get a wide letter. And if you don't, you get a narrow letter. And so we were able to create almost the syncopated, strange, loose rhythm that felt really reflective of the brushstrokes of his painting. Um, and it was called Big Ed. So we were like, it's perfect. It was meant to be. It was kismet. Very cool. The last question for you, because uh, I keep thinking about communication design and your career in it. Have you seen it change over your career? Like what, what things are sort of changing in the communication design realm? Right now, I think a lot is changing. And I see that in almost every aspect of the discipline. I think one of the most interesting things that has come to the surface in the time that I've been practicing is that when I started right out of grad school in 2008, I feel like digital design was working very hard to match the aesthetics of print design. And there was this desire to have exactitude and have clarity that felt reflective of a, a print design tradition. And I think recently we've seen more porousness in the boundary between those two disciplines. So interactive and print, suddenly it feels like you're seeing these print designs that have a fluidity, that have a layering, that have a dynamism that's more reflective of a digital space as opposed to something that's been codified in ink and paper. And that's really exciting to me. I see that in letter forms. I see that in color systems. Like in, in many ways, you start to see these things becoming more dynamic. And I think it gives it, it's more of an opening for people to design in creative ways that feel less static. Yeah. That's awesome. No, thank you for that. This is so cool. I thank you so much for being here and sharing all that. Well, thanks for having me. It's really exciting. Listeners, to see more of Catherine's work, visit stoltz.com. And Catherine, please stick around and we'll bring Lisa Fishman into the conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, 
discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. We're back, and we're joined by our special guest, Lisa Fishman. Lisa is the Ruth Gordon Shapiro, 37, Director and Chief Curator at the Davis Museum at Wellesley College. Prior to joining the Davis Museum, Lisa worked as a curator and gallery director at institutions including the UB Art Gallery of SUNY Buffalo, the Atlanta College of Art, and the University of Arizona Museum of Art. She has served on the Governance Committee of the Association of Art Museum Curators, and has acted as a review panelist for the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Arizona Commission on the Arts, just to name a few. Lisa is the chair of the board of directors at Surf Point Foundation, which is an art residency program in Maine. Her work has included considerable grant support, numerous commissions, and many publications. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sam. I'm delighted to be here with you and Catherine. Great to have you. So I'd love to start. Uh, tell us about the Davis Museum. Love to hear more about it. The Davis Museum is a fantastic museum, uh, a fine art museum located on the campus of Wellesley College in Wellesley, Massachusetts. So we're a little bit outside of Boston in Metro West, and we are housed in a fabulous Rafael Moneo building that was built in 1993. And soon after that, he won the Pritzker Prize. So it's on the outside, rather severe brick building that on the inside has connecting staircases that crisscross up to a top floor with sawtooth skylights above. It is spectacular. So we've got work in the collection from the beginning of time uh, to <laughs> yesterday, for the most part. I suppose that's a wide span. But really, it's all encompassing in, in the, you know what one might call an encyclopedic sense. And it includes a lot of treasures, all of which were given to Wellesley or purchased for the education of Wellesley women. And with the building of the davis Maneo building in, uh, in the early 90s, we became really a public resource in a different kind of way. Because you build a building like that, and of course you want to bring people in. And tell us about your role there, curator. What, what type of stuff are you working on day to day? Well, I came from a curatorial past, so um, rising to director seemed pretty natural, although I wasn't sure about that. <laughs> I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a transformation. And, um, and yet what I realized I could do, first of all, is join a rather small group of women at the time who were leading museums. That felt important to me. It felt important to me that I could create the kind of museum working environment that I actually wanted to work in. And I could bring together a team of people who would uh, be generous and inclusive and who would abide, um, I would say, shared values around the role of an academic museum to educate, but also to raise up to make space for the next generations. And that's one of the things that an academic museum can really commit to and really pull off. I think I was reading your interest lies where different creative spheres intersect. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, so I wonder, as this is a design podcast, how have you seen sort of that relationship between art and design sort of interacting at the Davis? 
Well, I think that you might say, you know, design is everywhere. Design is everything, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You see design and the influence of design in the environment of the building, but in the way that we think about the experience of encounter and in the actual transmission of information, in the aesthetic quality of the space and the presentation of the objects, in the ways that you imagine someone taking something home from their time at the museum. I think design is integral there uh, in every aspect. I see that separating the two, separating art and design, you know, allows for the focus on spheres of working experience and expertise and knowledge. Yeah, sure. But to understand them more broadly, to understand them as intersectional, it like brings a lot more to our sense of making in the world and impact. I completely agree from a designer's perspective as well, because I think that if we look at design as being exclusively in the service of a client, you lose the possibility of self-expression and it pretty severely limits the kind of expression of design that can happen. And so if we can start to see some of those fine art elements of art becoming integral to design, suddenly we'll have so many more perspectives, we'll have so many more, more ways of looking at it. I think we'll have a much richer design field because of that. And certainly, certainly that's true the other way around, right? It's incredibly true that um, the design impact on museum experience, on the quality of our work as curators, is enormously enhanced. Yeah, yeah. Tell me more about that. How, how does design sort of enhance your ability to communicate, whether it's a feeling or information, to the audience? Well, I think, you know, there are many components to that, but even, you know, Every time someone comes up with a curatorial idea, you're imagining an exhibition and you're imagining that in multiple ways at once, right? There are multiple levels to that. And one of them is object-based. You want to, you know, explore these objects and their connection in a certain context, but you want to distinguish what makes an exhibition from what makes anything else, what makes any other medium of communication. And in doing that, you're immediately thinking about the design qualities and about how design is going to communicate the experience to your visitor. So you're thinking about color and you're thinking about typography and you're thinking about encounter. So you're thinking about the layout of the space and the way that you might come across something either to surprise or to kind of push along. And the design work that comes into the you know all of the those aspects is critical i mean <laughs> from the the biggest view on uh, the museum as its entirety to one to an exhibition in one room design has an indelible impact let's dive into because i know uh stoltz and and the davis have worked a lot together from your perspective lisa how has Stoltz work, you know, how does it work, I guess? You, you create an exhibition and you want to create a specific feel and look. Do you approach Stoltz? I'd, lo I'd love, like, is there a case study we can talk about to kind of talk through the process? Well, Catherine reminded me that this has been seven years, which is kind of unbelievable. Wow, that's awesome. Yes, it is. You know, we, we are having a good long run. I wouldn't trade Stoltz for anything. I think, you know, <laughs> we have an amazing working relationship. So 
what I've noticed, not only through my own experience, but through particularly recently in the past year, watching these young curators who are new to the field, relatively speaking, and who are um, having their first Stoltz experience, I was watching them as they try to translate their ideas for presentation to Stoltz and the kind of thrill of receiving something back from Stoltz that they didn't expect. And the ways that the exchange forced them to sharpen their ideas and the ways that the Stoltz questions and presentation through design forced them to rethink what they thought they knew about their own projects. That's something I think because I was in the center of it myself as, you know, working as a curator and director, I don't know that I'd identified that so completely. But wow, Catherine, I was so struck by that this year. And maybe because we're not in the building, something, you know, about working remotely, I, I don't know. But I really have noted that as part of our process. That's cool. You could almost see like the creativity, you know, if the creativity is a ball that they're like passing back and forth, right? Yes, exactly. And it feels super reciprocal. So it feels like, you know, I have gone to Stoltz, you know, I've driven over there and gone up to the studio and sat down and confessed, you know, I don't know. I don't know what this is. I've got this idea. The Stoltz team will say, well, what about this? What about this? What have, you, have you looked at this? Have you thought about this? Catherine inevitably comes up with some kind of typographic solution to a problem that is just stunning. Aww. I mean, really. <laughs> well, thank you. Can you share, Catherine, where like Elisa or the team have come to you and they're like, we have this idea, maybe I won't even call it a vision, maybe vision is being too generous, we have an idea. And how do you sort of absorb that, you know, Lisa mentioned questions, and then kind of turn that around? What's that process look like for you? I mean, this is going to be a love fest, I have to warn you, because I have to say, Davis and Lisa are my favorite clients. And I think part of that is because you do instill so much trust in us during the process. And I think you give us so much latitude to explore that there really is a lot of exciting creativity that happens sort of in the space between the curatorial vision and the design work and what we're both putting into that space. Um, you said once to me, and I love this, you said distilling and expressing ideas in different media is sort of at the crux of what you do. And I think you do that through the experiential design, through the the objects and how you're arranging them. And we try and do that through the physicality of the objects that we're producing that express what you have done. So yeah, I think we've had a number of conversations where you've come and sat in our conference room and sort of explained the idea. And as you're talking, there's certain words that I'm jotting down that really evoke those ideas, but distilled and expressed through a different media. So you might talk about something that is based on process. And to me, that starts to say that, oh, we should expose some of the inner workings of the book, right? That if we can actually see the threads of the book, that implies that this thing is intended to be explored as an object that has been made by a craftsperson or has been made by a machine. Or we might be interested in playing with the perspective um, in terms of how the objects are shot. So maybe there's, like we said before, the totality of an object as opposed to the tiny details that really express the materiality of it. So for me, it's thrilling. Like I, I love being able to think about all of the other things that are influencing the curators and the artists and starting to think about how those can manifest in what we're designing. I love that. I think it's so profoundly collaborative so that 
there's never, I mean, I have heard about people who work at, you know, major municipal museums, curators who, you know, basically are instructed as to what a book, you know, what, what a catalog will look like by their design department. And they're expected to produce the prose, full stop. They have no impact and they certainly don't have a process. And I think every one of the books that we've done together has started with a kind of funny conversation where we're each taking notes and kind of coming back again and again and again to see something that we could not have imagined at the beginning emerges. Yeah, that's such a great point, because if you're just developing the book and it's a bunch of text and it's getting designed, if you will, you sort of lose the opportunity to do some of these things, you know, Catherine, you had mentioned in the first segment. Whereas if it's deeply collaborative, the text and the design and everything's kind of happening together, right? You're developing it kind of in tandem, which may be messier, but the outcome at the end of the day is so much more creative and unique. Yeah. And I mean, how thrilling to be able to enter a project and not have a concrete sense of what the final version will be and to watch it evolve. It's really exciting. It's really exciting. And it does mean that all of the catalogs that we produce together feel very different from each other and they feel more evocative of the experience of the art or the experience of the exhibition as opposed to something that felt like it was within an existing format and we were just pouring the content into it. But that's a very different perspective from, you know, wanting something to look like a Tate book. Right. Yeah. I had asked that question, Catherine, before, like, how do you balance each thing has its, you know, each exhibits a unique snowflake, but you're running a museum here, a full brand. How have you, Lisa, struck that balance between like, yeah, you can have, I I want every book to be a Tate book and look like this versus the creativity inherent in these exhibitions. It sounds like you're hitting a nice middle ground. Well, when I arrived at Wellesley in 2010, uh, I realized immediately that we needed to do some rebranding because the color scheme was very Southwestern, which I could not understand. And, you know, fast forward from having done that to working with Stoltz in a way that allowed us to kind of to understand the brand as evolving and to understand its evolution in a kind of interesting organic way so that we could see typographically, we could see that things would kind of open up what was a little bit rigid and static and that we could make all these different kinds of pieces, printed pieces and um, experiential pieces cohere, but not, not in a kind of cookie cutter way. In some ways, it actually reminds me of what we do with publication design, that if you're designing a magazine, there has to be a structure that's flexible that can accommodate different kinds of content. And it has to still come from the voice that you recognize as the voice. But there are places where you can push it to be more expressive or pull it back to feel a little bit more quiet. And it's in that balance that you start to find the things that are both appropriate to express the content, but also the ways that the brand needs to expand to accommodate the content that you wish to express. I had a question for you, Lisa. I know we had we had spoken previously and Something that's very notable about the Davis is that you don't have an in-house design department, that you do go to Stoltz, you do go outside of the museum for your design needs. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? Absolutely. I find that, you know, working with Stoltz means fresh eyes on every project. And not that isn't to say eyes without knowledge, but it is to say that Uh, Having worked with in-house designers in the past, uh, sometimes it's 
something becomes a little too familiar. It becomes a little too taken for granted. Um, there are preconceived notions that get built into a project. And I don't want that. I don't, I mean, I don't want that among curators either. I don't want, you know, the yes man. I want something that is reciprocal and collaborative and generative to happen. And I think that having an outside design team, particularly one with the extraordinary skills and knowledge and expertise of Stoltz, means we get a lot more into the conversation than we would if we were just, you know, walking down, a, down the corridor to an office at the Davis. Are there similarities in the process of curating a show and collaborating with designers? I think so, but I'm not sure that's true for everyone. <laughs> I think I might be a little bit strange. You know, I think um, I'm not a super orthodox curator or director for that matter, I suppose. And so in that, I would say that, you know, when I'm curating, particularly working with living artists, um, I always understand that as a reciprocal and collaborative process. I never think, I never have the idea in place when I go into talking to an artist about what the outcome will look like. And that has taught me a lot. I mean, it's taught me a lot about giving people freedom, trusting their skills and their expertise, um, believing that there's a kind of magical process in there where let's say the, the the collaboration is going to produce something unexpected that I could not have predetermined. And so working with artists has taught me a lot about that. Um, it's also taught me a lot about the flexibility to let something go or to believe when someone um, has a critique that wouldn't immediately have been mine <laughs> to be open and to, to defer. And I think that you know, there are a lot of similarities in the experience of working with Stoltz, I think. I'm curious then, when you're working with artists' work of past generations, how do you bring that same spirit of inquiry or serendipity into the experience of curating the show? Yeah, that's harder. I mean, I think often because I'm, you know, somebody who has a, a background that's academic, I suppose that I research, you know, I do a lot of research and I also read. Um, in kind of an associative way, so that I'm inclined to think not just about the thing in front of me, but sort of from a perspective that includes peripheral vision. So reading in a way that's integrative and kind of curiously holistic, you know, bringing associative context to bear so that whatever I'm producing will never seem like, you know, the Wikipedia entry on an artist. <laughs> It will always seem somehow surprising and richer for the work. In each show, do you have a moment where you realize what that thesis or what that thread is going to be? Is there an aha moment where it all starts to coalesce? I think there is, but there are also the moments in every project where you think, oh my God, why am I doing this? I mean, <laughs> so. <laughs> so I think that's a way that design and curation are similar, I think. Yes, totally. <laughs> when that doubt creeps in, you're like, huh, okay. So, I mean, you might as well just own that and be honest about it, you know? I mean, every mm -hmm. one of these projects, it's, they're so long-term and there's something, you know, I th I've realized over these years that that's part of it right? That, that that weird pit of uncertainty is essential to the process and that you come out the other side uh, 
with tremendous strength as a result of having weathered that. And your project is certainly better for it. Well, and I feel like the pit of uncertainty is reflective of taking a risk, right? If you if you feel certain about the project the entire time, then chances are you're doing things that feel very safe. Yeah. And if you're willing to stretch yourself, there's going to be a moment where you're very worried about how much you're stretching. Do you have a favorite project that we've worked on together? Well, you know, that's pretty much like if I asked you about your favorite child, which is unfair. That's true. <laughs> they're, they're twins, though. So I can I just know. say they're kind of a matched set. Yeah. I know, but I'm bum. I know. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say that I have several favorite projects. Um, one is Artless, which uh, we undertook in response to uh, the former president's first ban on Muslim immigration, and so we shrouded or uh, we shrouded or removed everything in the museum that was made by or donated by an immigrant. And your design work for that was amazing, outstanding, and extremely fast. Can you describe it? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this goes back to a question you had asked previously too, Sam, is the idea of how much does the design we do speak to the institution and how much does it speak to the content of the work that we're reflecting? And I think whenever we create designs and show them to Lisa or one of the curators at the museum, we will always show something that feels like it's very much within the Davis brand, something that's using those typefaces, using those colors, that really feels like it fits the voice of the museum. And then we'll show a series of progressive steps away from that until one of the things we show might feel like it, it it's really pushing the boundaries of the brand, that we're finding something that feels far afield from the original voice. And in that case, I think because of the speed, because it was something that we really did want to feel like it was coming from the voice of the museum, and because it influenced the collection so broadly as opposed to a singular vision within the collection, um, we used sans serif typeface. It's Swiss condensed. It is outline type, and it says artless, and it has a hashtag, and um, it just created these very simple, bold visual references throughout the museum that sort of spoke to that sense of absence and what was missing because of this silencing of an important through line, an important voice within the collection. That was fantastic. That felt important. And I feel like, you know, I've always been incredibly passionate about um, bringing in all of these different disciplines. And one of them really is social justice. And to find a way to respond professionally or under the auspices of my professional career to something that I felt so fundamentally personally was really exciting. I absolutely agree and echo that and would say that I've understand that museums are platforms for that kind of activism and that not only is the museum responsible to respond uh, to the circumstances of our moment, um, but also that we model institutionally and professionally, we model for the next generations who are coming up by doing that. And to not do it is to be, you know, ethically remiss, right? You're, you're just not even doing what you're supposed to be doing as an institution. Well, and from a formal standpoint, I feel like we wanted to capture something that spoke to the immediacy of the moment and also had a boldness that was reflective of the move that you were making. So, you know, in, in one of my type classes, when we're talking about how typography can reflect mood, you know, you take a stop sign and we all recognize that it is bold and it is all caps and it is telling you something important and municipal. And if you set that in an incredibly uh, ornate script, it totally loses the feeling. And that really felt like an all caps bold sans serif moment to me where we really needed to do something that felt like it was speaking in a strong voice. All right. I'm going to think about my favorite books and there are a lot. So that's hard. 
we did a book with Eddie Martinez called Ants at a Picnic that included uh, a poster as a wraparound cover for the book, which was fantastic. Very surprising. We did a book for Jason Rohr, the video game maker, that was all... Catherine, you'll have to, you'll have to describe it because I, I lose the words. Absolutely. It's, so it's incredibly vibrant in color. So it feels almost like something screen-based, like it's glowing from the inside. It uses um, pixel-based typefaces throughout because that's reflective of his aesthetic. So Jason Moore, the, the thing that made him so exciting to us is that every piece that he made reflected the technology in which it was made. So his aesthetics are very nimble, but incredibly varied. And so because the book is a format, it is an interface, we wanted to create book as game. So we worked with Jason and what we ended up doing was again, creating a French fold so that the inside of the pages can actually be taken out, unfolded and create a map that references a piece that he made previously that is buried in the desert in California. Oh, amazing. So again, like thinking about the actual object and how it can be manipulated to express the idea and how that could potentially even could extend to become a collaboration with the artist where they are using the medium to reflect their concepts. It was brilliant. I love that book too. Mm. Thank you. I could sit in this love fest for the rest of my day. It's you know, just make me part of this somehow. I love it. Lisa, thank you for sharing your expertise and y'all are doing such great work at the Davis. Thank you so much, Sam. Listeners, to see more of Lisa's work, you can always visit thedavis.org. And now it's that time, my favorite time of the week. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. Uh, my weekly dose comes from a good friend of mine, a great designer, Michael DeTulo. Uh, he's been on the show in the past. Uh, he's designed all kinds of things. He's a product designer, but he's the designer behind this new electric boat. It's called the Ark, which is pretty much the best name ever for an electric boat. They just recently came out of stealth mode. It's a startup and their first product is a 24 foot water sports boat that's fully electric. Uh, they were started by a handful of former SpaceX folks. And I think they're basically trying to become like the Tesla boats, which is great. The boat itself is beautiful. It's got all these like simple elements of classic sport boats, simple form. It's actually an aluminum hull, which is very unique. Usually they're like fiberglass or carbon fiber. It's also got these like wood details. I love the seating arrangements, storage compartments. Michael did such a good job on it. I think not having the motor hanging off the back also, like this big gas motor, it just looks so clean and sleek and I love it. This first boat from Ark is priced at $300,000. So yikes. But I saw an interview with the CEO, Mitch Lee uh, on The Verge, and he said they are working on developing less expensive models. So I will wait for those. Uh, but anyway, check out the design. It's great. We'll post the link and kudos to Michael and the team for designing a really cool electric boat. Okay. Catherine, you are up. I brought in something that I received in the mail this week that I'm really excited about. It's the second issue of Type 1 magazine. So you may be shocked that I am bringing something about typography in for my dose of good design. But this is a magazine in 
a digital world. And it's really exciting to see something that's physical and the ways that they're playing with experimentation and really leveraging the magazine as a physical medium. So it comes from uh, England. It's the same people who developed Femtype, which is um, elevating and highlighting women in typography, and also Type Department, which is a place to check out really strange, wonderful new typefaces. Um, but this cover is neon green, so they're playing with unusual inks, and it actually has a special edition with a lenticular cover, which means it has a bumpy cover that when you shift it back and forth, you see multiple images at the same time, because this issue is about kinetic typography. And so they managed to create get kinetic typography into a printed piece, and I applaud them. That's so awesome. I love that stuff. It reminds me of my youth and like baseball cards with a lenticular and you could like see the guy swinging the bat. It was like a little like animation. I thought immediately of the stickers that I collected when I was a kid and the lenticular ones were the special ones that you never gave away or used. And I probably still have a box of them at my mom's house. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) Listeners, uh, if you have a great weekly dose of good design, I'd love to hear it and then share it on the episode so you can tweet or share it with me on Twitter at Sam Aquilano. Catherine, thank you so much for being here. It was such a fun conversation with Lisa and just hearing your expertise around this. Again, Love Fest. Who doesn't love a Love Fest? Well, thank you so much. And I'll just put one more plug in for the magazine. It's less expensive than the boat. Oh, yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned that. (laughs) That's our show. I want to, again, thank Catherine Hughes and Lisa Fishman for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we have an awesome weekly email newsletter as well. You can sign up for right on our website. Be sure to rate and review and subscribe to Design Is Everywhere, anywhere you listen to podcasts, when you rate and leave a review, that helps more people find our show. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates, with additional editing support by Emily Roberts, and research and writing support by Tanya Chavla. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.